It's TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the sports, most of the jingles, the weather, and the commercials. Podcast number 247 for June 19th, 2011. Recorded June 16th. I've talked before about Google's decision to value profitability over honesty. And on Thursday of this week, I encountered another clear indication of this. On a Gmail page, I spotted an ad. It said, Overstock iPads, $30.93. Today only. Online auction site to give away 1,000 iPads for $30.93. www.bidrack.com forward slash daily deals. Well, anybody who thinks iPads are in an overstock condition isn't paying attention. And anybody who thinks one can be had for $30.93 must not be too bright. Clearly, there must be a catch. It took just a few moments to turn up dozens of complaints about the company for everything from identity theft and unauthorized use of credit cards to failure to deliver. One victim who thought she was registering with the company found an unauthorized $75 charge on her credit card. And ComplaintsBoard.com had lots of other reports of similar activities. Another site that talked about the merchant is PissedConsumer.com. It had lots of similar stories. Here's one, and I quote, I spent approximately $2,300 in bids. This isn't the problem. I was loving the site and having a great time bidding and winning. I was devastated after waiting over two months when I received an email telling me I would not be getting the items I won. I had spent hours and hours playing and winning on this site. I did receive a refund of some of my money, and I was given more bids to use. However, this did not do much to rectify that I was not going to receive the $6,750 worth of merchandise I won. All in all, even with the refunds, I was out $4,450 on the items I won. This was just a horrible feeling. I was also very disappointed when I knew that some people were still receiving their items that I was told were not in stock, even though they had received a review. Even after all this, I decided to give Bidrack another shot. Okay, this is obviously someone who's not paying attention. I continue. My second experience, I did receive my products, but two were not authentic, which now seems it will be impossible to prove to the satisfaction of Bidrack. They're making hoops it is impossible to jump through. With losing the value of these two non-authentic bags and the $1,000 per item guarantee of authenticity, I'm losing out on a value of $3,185. With these two experiences, the value of my time, product I did not receive, etc., would total about $7,835, and this is taking into account the refund I received. Wow. So what does this have to do with Google? 
Well, Google must be aware of these kinds of deceptions. Time was, many years ago, when I was working with a client to place some ads on Google, somebody at Google read every single ad that was submitted, and any claim that was even slightly questionable was refused. You couldn't put it out there. How times have changed. Ads such as the one I've mentioned today are all too common and invariably research taking less than a minute, using Google, by the way, reveals many complaints. Surely some of the smart folks living the pampered life at Google have the smarts to write an algorithm that checks advertisers' links against complaint sites. Surely some of the smart folks at Google could take time out from a game of pool or getting a free pedicure and write an application that would help police the ads. Surely it would be easy for some of the smart folks at Google to find a way to remove the fraudulent ads. Unless, well, unless somebody at the top likes things just the way they are. Okay, maybe you don't put much faith in consumer-generated reports on complaint sites. Fair enough. What about the Better Business Bureau? Here's what the Better Business Bureau says about Bidrack. Dot com. And of course I quote, Consumers report that when they sign up for the service, they are under the understanding that it is free. However, upon registration, their credit card is then charged a fee, often around $99. The Better Business Bureau strongly encourages you to read carefully the terms and conditions of any offer. Google, once you were a company with honor, principles, and scruples. Where has that old Google gone? And will it please come back? Speaking of coming back or going back, if you try dual monitors, you'll never go back to a single. No matter how large your computer's monitor is, if it's a single monitor, it's still just a single monitor. Adding a second monitor is no longer expensive or difficult. So, what are you waiting for? Two relatively inexpensive options exist for increasing your computer's usability. The first is to add more memory. The second is to add a second monitor. Adding memory is one of the oldest tricks in the book of computer geekdom. If you use a 32-bit system with less than 4 gigabytes of RAM, you will notice a distinct improvement when you add memory up to 4 gigabytes. And if you have a 64-bit system that doesn't have at least 8 gigabytes of RAM, you are shortchanging yourself. But multiple monitors? You might think you can look at only one monitor at a time, and that is true. So why add a second monitor? A second increases the net display area. That's pretty obvious. But why is this an improvement? People who use Photoshop or InDesign or Premiere will recognize the benefits immediately. It's easier to keep track of all those little extra boxes so that you'll know what's going on when your main workspace is on one screen and the menus or staging areas are on a second monitor. At work, I don't use those applications, but I do work with several applications simultaneously. I might, for example, have two browsers open, one on each screen, one to track tasks that are assigned to me, the other to track tasks that I have assigned to developers. Or I might have two instances of Excel running so that I can compare data from one sheet to another. At the office, the monitors are matched, and that is the ideal. 
At home, I use one large monitor and a second, much smaller monitor. This makes dragging applications from one screen to the other more difficult than if both monitors were the same size and height. But the monitors don't have to be matched. They don't even have to be the same type. You can have one LCD and one old CRT if you want. Here's a little how-to from Wikipedia. Video output is generated by a video graphics device, typically on a removable card, but which may also be integrated into the motherboard as a discrete device or as part of the chipset logic. The output is interpreted and displayed by a variety of devices. Video outputs are generally connected to a monitor, either CRT or LCD. However, they are increasingly being connected to projection equipment or television sets. As a result of this trend, manufacturers have produced video cards which can connect to several types of display devices using the appropriate interface. A dual-head configuration utilizes a video card that supports two discrete outputs. Users may also utilize two discrete video cards and sometimes even an integrated motherboard video socket plus a second video card. Although often the motherboard disables the integrated video when a discrete video card is used, a limitation that was common in older chipsets featuring integrated AGP graphics and an AGP upgrade slot. Thanks to Wikipedia for that how-to. The primary hardware disadvantage to using more than one monitor is that this divides the video card's resources. In plain English, that means you need a more powerful video card. If you're asking the video card to display two 1920x1080 images, you're going to need a lot of video memory, or VRAM. Long ago, video cards with 128 megabytes of RAM were on the cutting edge. But today's video cards need at least one gigabyte of VRAM if you want to support multiple monitors. I'll show you my two setups. You'll find them on the TechBiter Worldwide website. When I'm working on TechBiter, I have two mismatched screens. A large widescreen model is my primary viewport, while an antique low-resolution handles the overflow. That's low-resolution by today's standards. Ideally, monitors should be matched and at the same height so that it's possible to extend an image onto both screens as needed or to drag a window from one screen to another. When they're at different levels, as they are at TechBiter, dragging isn't always as straightforward as you'd like it to be. You'll also see a third screen in the image from the TechBiter site. That's a notebook computer. I use it when I need the extra screen for something, and it's also handy for viewing a website with different browsers, or when I want to work with Linux. Now, at the office, I have matched monitors. That's a better solution. But any arrangement that has more than one monitor is better than any arrangement that has just one. One instance of the bug tracker is open on the left screen that you'll see, and several windows are behind it. On the right, another instance of the bug tracker is obscured by OneNote and a Windows Explorer window. But it's there. Trust me, it's in the background. And at the far left of that image, it's another notebook computer, actually a netbook. It's connected to the Internet, but is not on the corporate LAN. This machine gives me access to my personal email account and, during lunch, to websites that are blocked by the corporate LAN. If you are looking for a digital camera, you probably pay a lot of attention to megapixels, and that's exactly what the manufacturers would like you to do. Hey, manufacturers, forget about plain English. How about just a little plain math? 
One key factor is sensor size, yet if you try to check that, you'll find that the sensors have measurements like 1 divided by 3.6 inches, or 1 divided by 3.2 inches, or 1 third of an inch, or 1 divided by 2.7 inch, or 1 half inch, or 1 divided by 1.8, 2 divided by 3, that would be 2 thirds, 1 inch, hey that one's easy, or 4 divided by 3. No wonder we watch the megapixel parade and ignore the sensor behind the curtain. Now, any of the sensor sizes that I just mentioned could be in a 12-megapixel camera, just to grab a number out of the air. But one of those cameras might cost $75, while the other might cost $4,000. The difference wouldn't be entirely because of the sensor, but understanding why one will deliver better results than another is important. This goofy system of measurement, by the way, goes back to the days of tubes and television cameras. The first digital cameras were based on TV technology, after all. In fact, you'll find an amusing picture on this week's TechBiter Worldwide. The first digital camera, complete with a cassette recorder. Eastman Kodak engineers Steve Sasson and Gareth Lloyd are the people you can thank for the digital camera. They invented it in 1975 with U.S. patent 4,131,919. The first one wasn't very portable, as you'll see. Back in the 1950s, the tubes used in TV cameras had a type designation, typically two-thirds inch or one-half inch. The designator is the outside diameter of the tube, and the usable area of the sensor is typically about two-thirds of the sensor's overall size. That continues to be true. What really matters is the physical size of the sensor itself. A 1 divided by 3.6-inch sensor is 4 millimeters wide and 3 millimeters tall with a 5 millimeter diagonal, while a 1 divided by 1.8-inch sensor is a little more than 7 millimeters wide and about 5.3 millimeters tall, with a diagonal measure that's a little bit less than 9 millimeters. The larger the sensor for any given resolution, the less noise the sensor will generate. Noise is random white speckles, or luminance noise, and random colored speckles, or color noise. You want as little of both as you can afford. It seems to me that camera manufacturers could, and should, specify sensor size the way monitor manufacturers specify monitor size, height, width, and diagonal measurements. It would be immediately obvious that a 1 divided by 3.6 inch sensor is smaller than a 1 divided by 1.8 inch sensor. Actually, that's pretty clear to anyone who knows anything about math, but the meaning of mixed fractional decimal numbers like 1 divided by 3.6 inches isn't inherently clear. By way of comparison, 35 millimeter print film is 36 millimeters wide. Yes, 35 millimeter film is 36 millimeters wide. Why? I don't know. It's also 24 millimeters tall and has a diagonal of a little over 43 millimeters. To add even more mud to the muddle, the total number of pixels on the sensor is larger than the effective number of pixels used to create the output image. The camera manufacturer will almost always cite the larger, and essentially meaningless, number. Typically, the camera doesn't use every photodiode edge-to-edge on the sensor. A camera with a sensor that contains 12.5 million photodiodes may use only 12 million of them. And that's the number that should be advertised, not 12.5. Even worse, some manufacturers install an 8-megapixel sensor 
and then interpolate the image to 12 megapixels. This is the same technique that's used for digital zoom. It degrades the image. But the marketing department can then claim that the camera is a 12-megapixel camera because the images are 12-megapixel images, even though they're really 8-megapixel images just blown up to 12 megapixels. Shouldn't that be illegal? What manufacturers don't talk about is the quality of the image that the sensor can create. At least, they don't talk about it in more than in general terms. They say that it's wonderful or bright or clear. Well, more pixels doesn't automatically make the image better. Other considerations worth keeping in mind are these. Is the lens matched to the sensor? If the camera is doing any interpolating, the lens is not matched to the sensor. How accurate is the color created by the photodiodes? The most accurate sensors made are those from Foveon, but the ISO rating is lower, meaning a wider lens aperture or a slower shutter speed or both. That aside, the more accurate the color, the more the sensor is going to cost. What kind of dynamic range does the sensor have? More is better. Dynamic range is a measurement of the camera's ability to record detail in dark shadows as well as in highlights. How noisy is the sensor? Smaller sensors are almost always more noisy. Higher ISO settings generate more noise than lower settings. CMOS sensors, which were once considered substandard, now routinely turn in better noise numbers than the previous favorites, the CCD sensors. CMOS, by the way, means complementary metal oxide semiconductor, and CCD means charge-coupled device. Don't you feel better knowing that? When you're in the market for a digital camera, pay less attention to the shiny objects that the marketing department dangles in front of you, and learn how to read the specifications for the important measurements. You'll be much happier with what you buy. In short circuits, here's how to make a small fortune on Wall Street. Start with a large fortune. Internet radio station Pandora's initial public offering was a big hit, and intense demand drove up the price for Pandora's stock. But on the second day of trading, the shares lost and lost big. The IPO price was $16, but shares quickly climbed to $26. Every $26 share you bought is now worth about $13. And even that is above the $8 per share target price discussed just a couple of weeks ago. Recent Internet IPOs have been successful, and there have been more IPOs for Internet-based firms than at any time since 2000. Investors apparently concluded that an 11-year-old company that has never made a profit was a good bet. Instead of profits, Pandora has $92 million in losses. For the fiscal year that ended last January, Pandora had $138 million in sales, still lost $11 million. Lulz Security, also known as LulzSec, a loose-knit group of hackers who have been in the news a lot recently, are back in the news with claims that they broke into the Central Intelligence Agency's website. Announcing the feat on Twitter, Lulz Security said that it had caused the CIA website to fail. Well, technically then, that wouldn't be a breach or a break-in, but a distributed denial-of-service attack that's conducted from outside the organization. It's still an effective attack, one that renders the website unavailable to anyone who tries to access it. 
Earlier in the week, LulzSec said it would release data from Senate.gov. The files the group released were mundane and unimportant, but a Senate official said that security staffers had noticed the attack over the weekend. The attackers accessed files on the Senate's public website, but did not get beyond the government firewall. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. Thanks. Bye-bye.